Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Excellent Elders, Part 1. Excellent Elders, Part 1. And we're only going to look at one verse today. And that's Acts chapter 13, verse 1. And I'm going to go ahead and read that. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, who was the Tetrarch, and Saul. <clears throat> now over the past few weeks, this is really ringing this mic, guys. Over the past few weeks, um, you may have been a little mystified as to the main title of, of our last two messages. Now I say the main title. The subtitles have been, I think two weeks ago was Prophets, Teachers, and a Dynamic Duo. Last week, if you remember, we talked about a cosmopolitan church in a metropolitan area, right? And those were the subtitles, but the main title for the past two weeks and the next few weeks, including today, is the first international overseas mission. Again, we've done part one and part two. Today's part three. And you may be saying, but we haven't talked much about outreach and we haven't talked much about missions. <clears throat> well, what we've been doing is looking at the nature of this phenomenal church, this church in Antioch. And we have been saying that the book of Acts presents for us the standards, the patterns, the blueprints for the church by way of example. Principles for the church. And since we are the church, these principles are written and catalogued for our admonition upon whom the ends of the earth have come, it says in 1 Corinthians 10. And it helps us to recognize and understand what exactly is required of us. Just like in Acts 2 where it says the Christians were devoted to three slash four things. The apostles' doctrine, teaching. They were devoted to fellowship and to breaking of bread, which we did in a semblance of a fashion. Breaking bread wasn't always in the way that we do it. Very often it was around a meal, getting together and eating food, literally breaking bread. And remembering the Lord's death. But we remember it nonetheless. And also prayer. These things um, were hallmarks of the early church. We also saw that they were committed. That is the early church. They were committed to evangelism. They were committed to sharing the message. That they had been impacted by. That they had been changed and affected by. We also saw how they were able to cope with persecution 
where individuals weren't just being pointed a finger at or called names, they were dying. And we saw how they coped with that difficult situation. And we saw a little bit about, if you remember when we done Acts chapter 6, we saw a little bit about church organization when we saw the deacons set apart in order to minister to the ladies who were being neglected in the daily ministration of food, right? So, <clears throat> even though we've not been talking about missions specifically, missions and outreach per se, we're looking at the pattern of the church that will go on to do this. And these patterns are timeless. And the standards are universal. And Antioch is a blueprint of the church that reaches the world. It's a sample, it's a model church. And it is vital that any church that is worthy of its savior must be one that emulates the model or is a replica of the original that we see in the book of Acts. It's far from a perfect church because there is no perfect church in that sense, not practically speaking. Yet we see the pattern of a healthy church as we look through the book of Acts. And <clears throat> in the past and over the next few weeks, we're going to see just how incredible this particular church at Antioch is. One out of which will come an amazing, if not one of the most amazing foreign mission trips of all time. We're going to see one of the ways in which the church can realistically fulfill the Great Commission, which ought to be one of the main goals of every church. Amen? Now, Pastor Chuck Smith, who started the very first Calvary Chapel back in the 1960s, at our ordination, that's when myself, Pastor Patrick, and Pastor Ephraim were ordained, at our ordination, he said, quote, Costa Mesa, that is the church that was in that particular vicinity called Costa Mesa in California. He said, Costa Mesa is my Jerusalem. He says, you, that is Calvary Chapel, South London, you are now our uttermost parts of the world. Then he said, South London now is your Jerusalem. Hopefully, you will have a Judea, a Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. And it seems as if this is becoming a reality, right? What with us, six years later, preparing to plant a church in Jamaica. Now, I'm not sure what happened to the Judea and the Samaria. We just went straight to the uttermost parts of the world, right? <laughs> maybe we're going to work backwards. Who knows? Now, one of the things that we looked at last week was that this church at Antioch reflected its cosmopolitan context, remember? It's a mixed congregation, not just young and old, rich and poor, male and female, but black and white, or black and... What color are Jewish people? Technically, us, you know what I'm saying? Let's, let's, for argument's sake, let's say they're white, right? Even though they've got a bit of color still. I mean, no one's white, right? Even, even people who are white are not white. <laughs> so it was a multicultural church. And it had multiracial leadership. 
multiracial leadership. And it goes down in history as the cradle of Gentile Christianity. The war between Jew and Gentile had now come down, just like the war between East and West Germany, that middle wall of partition. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Imagine that. Imagine being in the world without God. You, the person that God created, in the world that God created, yet you're in that world without God. In the world of... Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition, the hostility, when he nullified it in his flesh, that is the law of commandments in decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile both to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by which the hostility has been killed. Thank the Lord Jesus. Because, because of him, the beef got squashed properly. Verse 17, and he, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. That's taken from the TCNT, the 20th century New Testament <clears throat> translation. The middle wall of partition has been taken down. Now, middle wall of partition. Here is a two-dimensional bird's eye view of the temple in Jerusalem and it's Herod's temple. This is the first century. Evidently, it's not a picture. One, they didn't have cameras. <laughs> well, one, they didn't have cameras. It's not a picture. It's a, it's a painting or a drawing. And just so we can get some perspective on it. We're looking at it from the east gate, right? Now, still looking at it roughly from the east gate, here is a beautiful three-dimensional model of the same. Note the large area around the main building. You see that? You've got the main building right in the center, and then around it there's a large area, all right? Now, here is a two-dimensional diagram <clears throat> locating all the different aspects. Now, we've been looking at it, as I said, from the east gate. Looking at this diagram, it's a bit upside down, right? You can see, hopefully, 
where the east gate is so you kind of get a perspective in terms of where we were originally looking at it versus where we're looking at it from now now let's describe just some of the different parts i'm not sure if you can read that from where you're sitting but can you see the court of the gentiles that's the large area that i asked you to kind of look at in the previous picture that large area is the court of the gentiles that's where the gentiles are allowed to attend then we have the court of the women can you see that within that that smaller area you've got the court of the women kind of at the top there <clears throat> and obviously this is a court where the women predominantly would would meet that is Jewish women because you can't be a Gentile woman and get into that section because you would be out in the court of the Gentiles then you have the, the gate beautiful, the beautiful gate, which we'll see again in a minute. Then you've got the court of the men. Obviously, this court excludes not just women, or should I say not just Gentiles, but also women. Court of the men, and then just beyond the court of the men, as you get closer to that central most important aspect of the the temple you come to the court of the priests which technically is the outer court where you have the the brazen or the bronze bronze altar of sacrifice which is where they offered up the sacrifices and the the bronze or the brazen laver where the priests used to wash um you probably remember this from when pastor patrick done the tabernacle even though he was talking more specifically about the tabernacle of moses but <clears throat> this was the temple that developed after the temple that Solomon built, right? So you had the tabernacle of Moses, which was transportable all around the, the desert, the wilderness. And then they came into Israel, possessed the land, and then they came into Jerusalem where they built, um, David wanted to build a temple, right? And the Lord said, no, because you're a man with blood on your hands. And he said, your son will build a temple, which was Solomon. Then after Solomon's temple got wrecked, it was rebuilt again later by Herod. And this is, the, this is the temple that we're now looking at. So that central area was what they called the sanctuary. Or, if you like, the sanctuary was one compartment within this compartment, which was the larger of two compartments. And in this sanctuary or this holy place, if you walked in there, only being a priest, because only the priest could go in there, on the left-hand side, you had the, the golden lampstand, which consistently burned. There was no light. There were no windows in this particular compartment. So that's the only light in that room. And then on the right-hand side, you had a table of showbread with the fresh bread, 12 loaves, um, represented 12 nations of Israel. And then right in front, you had what? You had... The altar of incense, which is where the priest would offer up the incense. And it was in this compartment that Zechariah was, remember? When he was performing his priestly duty, when <gasps> the angel appeared to him. Must have been a terrifying experience, right? Well, that was a sanctuary, or that's the holy place. Then you had a veil. And then beyond the veil, you had a much smaller compartment which was the Holy of Holies, which contained the Ark of the Covenant. 
which only the high priest went into once a year and not without blood. So you can see with regard to this area, you have this massive area, then it becomes smaller, which becomes more confined, not, in terms of, not just because of the size, but in terms of who can actually enter. And as you move closer to the Holy of Holies, it becomes more restricted and more restricted and more restricted. Now, getting back to the point, <clears throat> that outer, that, that larger outer area, the court of the Gentiles, was separated from the area that the Jews could attend by a wall or a wall of partition. And I'm just going to highlight it now. I'm not sure if you can see that from where you're sitting, but I'm going to highlight it in red. And that was known as the wall of partition. The middle wall, notice it's in the middle between the, gent the court of the Gentiles and that area that only the Jews could attend. The partition between Jews and how far the Gentiles could come. Okay. Let's put those names in. So you've got the court of the Gentiles. And remember I mentioned the beautiful gate. It's just there. You can't really see it that clear because of the light. That's the beautiful gate where in Acts chapter 3, that, that man was healed by the Lord through Peter um, when he said to him, silver and gold have I none. Remember? That's where it took place, at the beautiful gate. Then we have the court of the, the women. You can see that. And then we have the court just behind that, just behind that wall, the court of the men, along with the court of the priests, the outer court, the brazen altar of sacrifice, and then the tall building in the center, as I mentioned, which had the two compartments, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. <clears throat> now, can you see very faintly that wall that that pink arrow is pointing to. It's got to have a bit of pink in there, in it? Can you see that wall? This is the wall that I earlier highlighted in red. This is the middle wall, the wall of partition that separated Gentiles from Jews. This is the wall pictured in Paul's mind as he wrote Ephesians 2 verse 14. According to Josephus, this wall was about three cubits high. A cubit is from the elbow to the tip of the fingers, right? So about three cubits high, I don't know, four foot high. On this wall, on the outward side, were placed warnings to Gentiles not to go beyond the wall. And it read, No Gentile may enter within the railing around the sanctuary and within the enclosure. Whosoever should be caught will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. Interestingly, at the entrance to a graveyard at the Haram Wall was found a stone. And it was discovered in 1871. And it was built into that wall that I just showed you, bearing the following inscription in Greek. 
And it said, no stranger is to enter within the partition wall and enclosure around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will ensue. Now, while Paul was writing the epistle to the Ephesians at Rome, this barrier in the temple at Jerusalem was still standing. Yet the chained prisoner of Jesus Christ was not afraid to write that Christ had broken down the middle wall of partition. I mean, do you remember when, when the Lord Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished? Do you remember what happened in the temple? The veil was rent in two and check it, the scripture says from top to bottom. I mean, you get the impression that God himself grabbed it and like a telephone book, tore it in two from top to bottom indicating now that the way into the most holy place was now open through Christ's death on the cross. So, so that's one thing, but now Paul is saying further to that, or based on that, he said that middle wall of partition, although it's still there, right there in the temple, that middle wall of partition had come down. And had thus admitted Gentiles who were far off, strangers and foreigners, to all the privileges of access to God in ancient times possessed by Israel alone. That separation between Jew and Gentile was done away with forever in Christ. And if not literally torn down, it was eventually, when? In 70 AD. There can be no doubt that this stone discovered was one of those originally placed on the boundary wall which separated the Jews from the Gentiles of which Josephus, who is a, 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 a Jewish historian, speaks. He says, for it was thrown down in the burning of the temple by the Roman army in 70 AD. And out of those ruins, a fragment has been excavated in our own day. That's his day. Containing the very inscription, threatening death to the Gentile intruder and reminding us that it is only in Christ Jesus that we now draw near to God and that we are one body in Christ, one new man. Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition for he in his own person is our peace. Now you might sit there and think, Robert, man, you took like 10 minutes to keep on talking about the same thing. It's like we got it already. But... Like I said a few weeks ago, with regard to Acts chapter 13, and that's why we're spending a bit of time in here, you have to appreciate just how groundbreaking and how unprecedented what is taking place is. You're talking about centuries of things being the way they were, now changing at that point. Changing. Yet, as much as Paul said it as much as literally Titus went in and tore that wall down literally yet up until today December 2009 some Jews deny this and in their synagogues they still have that middle wall now that is not a model for the church amen whether visible or invisible walls. Okay. Back to the good model, the God model. 
the exemplary model, the church at Antioch. What was it that made this church such a great example? Well, one of the things that makes for a good church is leadership or good leadership or godly leadership. Last week, we began to talk about these five men, these five leaders, these five elders, these five excellent elders. Barnabas, a Jew from Cyprus. Black Simeon. You lot was laughing the other week and I never knew why, but somebody told me. It's all, it's all good. Black Simeon. Then Lucius from North Africa. Manian who was an educated man of great influence, related to Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, who was a Jew from Tarsus. And remember, we looked at those different places on the mountain, and we saw the cosmopolitan nature, not only of Antioch and where it was situated, but the leaders of the church at Antioch. And we began last week to talk about who they were. And this week... First of all, I'd like to continue that and suggest that they were men, stating the obvious. Now, ladies, please don't switch off. This in no way, just because we're talking about men, this in no way, actually, this is, you're going to find this quite interesting. This in no way ignores or seeks to undervalue the place, the role, and the significance of a woman. I mean, vital role is being played by women. Particularly now, as we'll see in a minute. But could I suggest that in our present climate, we cannot emphasize enough the need for strong Christian men. So, ladies, just... Hang in there. Now, here we have a pie chart which gives us, just on average, the figures as they relate to men and women in terms of their attendance in church. Right? It's the average adult attendance in churches. Now, these are U.S. figures I can't find anything specific in I'm saying to the UK. These are US figures, but definitely reflect our culture in the UK, right? I mean, they say if America sneezes, Britain catches a cold, right? We know that there's definitely similarities. Now, check it. A few, um, a few points. The typical congregation draws an adult crowd that is 61% female, and 39% male. This gender gap shows up in all age categories. On any given Sunday, there are 13 million more adult women than men in America's churches. This Sunday, apart from the time change, Greenwich Mean Time and so on, they're what, five hours behind us, right? They're all sleeping. But in a minute, they'll all be getting up. This Sunday, almost 25% of married, church-going women will worship without their husbands. 25%. It's one in four, right? 
Midweek activities often draw 70 to 80% female participants. The majority of church employees are women, except for ordained clergy who are overwhelmingly male, yet we now know that in this country and in the States, there's a big push for female ordination, right? Of priests. Over 70% of the boys who are being raised in church will abandon it during their teens and 20s. Many of those boys will never return. More than 60% of American men believe in God, apparently. And over half of those call themselves Christians. But only two out of six attend church on a given Sunday. The average man accepts the reality of Jesus Christ, but fails to see any value in going to church or attending fellowship. We don't like to say going to church because we're the church, right? It's not a building. Churches overseas, this is from an American point of view, right? Churches overseas report gender gaps of up to nine women for every adult man in attendance. Hey, if you're a man and you're looking for a woman... That's why they say the church is the best place to come. Nine women to one man. Christian universities are becoming convents. The typical Christian college in the U.S. enrolls almost two women for every one man. Fewer than 10% of U.S. churches are able to establish or maintain, and this is heartbreaking, check it, fewer than 10% of U.S. churches are, are able to establish or maintain a vibrant men's ministry. Less than 10%. Now, how many of you know that church is good for men? Churchgoers are more likely to... This is, the statistics suggest this. Churchgoers are more likely to be married and express a higher level of satisfaction with life. Church involvement is the most important predictor of marital stability and happiness. Basically, the man them who are married and, and are in church are happy, holding it down, doing well with regard to the family and its stability, and married. Church involvement moves people out of poverty. It's also correlated with less depression, more self-esteem, and greater family and marital happiness. That's what I, I, can, I can hold both my hands up and say that this is so true for me. Because before I become a Christian, I had no intentions of getting married. That was not even on my radar. And not just because, well, I've looked back in the past and I've seen loads of marriages destroyed. I've seen my, my dad walk out on my mum when I was eight. Not just because of that. It was like, straight. Why would I ever want to commit myself to one woman? That don't make sense. That's madness in my prior thinking. But you know what? When I got saved, I knew that the Lord was saying quite clearly from his word and by his spirit in my heart, see that woman that you're with? Yes, Lord. What, the, 
The one that you're living with. Yes, Lord. All right, you can't continue to live like that. Either you separate or you marry her. Okay, Lord. In my mind, I was like, okay, cool. Well, don't look like me and you can be together anymore. Because when I got saved, yeah, I was on a thing like where, boy, I'm going to be like the Apostle Paul. I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a man on a mission. So I can't, take no, I can't have no luggage. You get me? I've got to cut loose. You know what I'm saying? Anything that's going to slow me down. So I'll be like, hey, it was, it was good. It was nice while it lasted. That was, that was me. Anybody who knows me back from back then knows that's true. And I can say this safely. I mean, not just because my wife ain't here, but <laughs> I can say it safely because she really had, be, had more sense than me spiritually. Because in the face of all of that, she just turned around and said, Robert, I know you're going to be my husband. And that just infuriated me. <laughs> but eventually, I determined not to get married. I said, okay. So the Lord's speaking to you, is he? Well, he ain't said nothing to me about this. And evidently, I'm one of the vital parties. I said, hear what? I'm going to go away on a fast, and I'm going to seek the Lord. See what he's really got to say about this situation. <laughs> Went away with two of my friends, a guy called Courtney Buchanan, and another guy called Linford Dunstan. Ian Dunstan's brother. And we went to Cambridge and we found some, some caravan in the middle of nowhere. I, up to this day, I don't even remember where it was. I just know it was Cambridge and it was cold. And we was up there in this caravan with a little heater eating polo mints and drinking water for seven days. And check it, that's the, that's the first and the last time I've ever done any kind of fast like that. And it was like, I knew that this was serious things. And I mean, I couldn't afford to make a mistake on this one. For me, back then and now as well, I was like, marriage has got to be the second most important decision you make next to accepting Christ. I'd be like, I can't, <laughs> I can't make a mistake on this. So we're there praying and seeking the Lord, and they were seeking the Lord for other things. And I was like, Lord, you've got to show me. Lord, I'm not even joking. You need to... I'm here for seven days and I'm hoping, Lord, I'm expecting that you're going to speak to me. And on about the third or the fourth day while we were there, we went to the phone box. Linford was going to phone his girlfriend, who was Loretta back in them days in London. And me and Courtney stood up next to this bus shelter. I think I was telling someone this story last week. Standing up next to this bus shelter that's waiting for him. Be like, come on, man, hurry up so we can go and sit down and do nothing in the caravan. You know what I mean? I don't know. And we're there, and something just says to me, just turn around. Not, not an audible voice, but I just, I just turn around, and I looked at this wall. I, really, I didn't know I was going to tell this story, so I would, have put the, I would have brought it with me. That is, on this wall was all this graffiti and writing, but in the middle of the wall, in the biggest letters, was Robo for Helen. <laughs> and when I looked at it, I was like, I can't believe this. I mean, because, check it, I didn't want to believe it. But then I, I looked and it's like something hit me in my solar plexus like I couldn't breathe. And it's like, and check it. What am I doing in the middle of Cambridge on a fast with my camera? It's just ridiculous. It don't even make, I had, so I took a picture of this on the wall, and I've actually got it. I've got it on my laptop. 
If I'd known I was going to tell the story, I would have shown it to you. That's the, for all the romantics in the audience. <laughs> um, but you know what? It was like the Lord had, had written it, if you like, on the wall for me. And the, the check it. The thing is, deep in my heart, I knew it. But I was running from it. I didn't want it. But I see that that's what the Lord wanted for me. So came back to London, innit? I was like, I think if, if, if I think I've told this story about three times, and Helen always corrects me, and she says that it never really happened like this. I thought I came back and I said, "All right, honey," got down on one knee and proposed, but I didn't. <laughs> I don't even I don't even know what happened, but when I came back, I was convinced that I needed to get married, and within a year, we were married. And that's October gone, 19 years. Next year will be my 20th anniversary, right? And I look back and I say, Lord, if I had, imagine if I had chosen to do my own thing, to go my own way and disregard what at least at that point I was assured that you were speaking, that you were saying to me. Well, if I had done that, I definitely would not be standing here today. Who knows where I would be, and I'm saying my life definitely testifies to the fact that when a man comes into Christ and he comes into his church, God changes that man. And he changed me, changed my perspective with regard to women, marriage, children, relationships, changed my perspectives on all of those things. And I can look back and I can say, you know what? I am a happily married man. I can't even, I, I can't even lie. I'm a happy brother. You know what I mean? Now, I have my drama, like everybody else does, particularly when you've got teenagers. You know what I mean? But, my gosh, just the other day I sat down and I was eating my dinner. Genuinely, you know, you, you, you pause before you eat and say, thank you, Lord, for this food. I'm so grateful. And then I had to say, but, Lord, you know what? I'm grateful for my family. I'm, I'm in my yard, sitting down in perfect peace with my kids up, one upstairs, one downstairs on the computer, wherever they are, and, and my wife in the house. And I thought, Lord, thank you. Because especially coming around to this time of the year, Coming around to this time of the year, I remember before I got married, sorry to take a bit of time on this, before I got married, I worked in the post office, and I used to sit in a little big post, big canteen, I used to sit in a corner they used to call Caribbean Corner, where all the black drivers used to sit down, right? Now, it wasn't, there wasn't a hate, hating thing, black and white, not at all, but it just, that's just the way it was. Number one table was where all the white drivers sat, and a couple of black drivers, but predominantly, and I'm sitting there, and I'm saying to these brothers, you know, fellas, I'm, I'm getting married. They're like, what? Are you nuts? Are you mad? <laughs> Bruv, you're only 23. It's like, how can you think, be even thinking? See, now that's the way I thought, and I would have agreed with them. But I said, no, nah, man, I'm getting married. They're like, you're mad, man. And man, I ain't never getting married this young. I need, man's need to enjoy themselves before they make them kind of big commitments. So I'm like, okay, check it. I still see from time to time those guys. You see this time of the year? One of them last year I saw, 
was like, yeah, what's going on, man? What's going on, bruv? After I ain't seen him for a little while. Oh, Rob, man, drama. I'm like, what do you mean, man? I said, Christmas is a wonder this, this time. Like, I said, Christmas is a wonderful time. We're talking about drama. I mean, finances, yeah, okay, I understand. Credit crunch and all that. But he was like, nah, Rob, I hate Christmas. He says, at Christmas, I have to, on Christmas Day, I can't sit down in my yard. Because if I sit in my yard, I'm sitting in my yard on my own. What I have to do is I have to make three stops. One in East London, one over in West London, and one over in South London, something like that. I'm like, what? He says, yeah, because I've got three kids for three different women. So I've got to go one place, and then I kind of cotch, and I'm sitting there looking at the clock. And my child is really excited because I'm there, but I've got to leave them. And then I've got to go across the, 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 the Thames over to North London. Go, and then he says, Christmas is not a good time for me. And I looked at that and I... You know, in Proverbs it says, you're a wise man if you can look at someone else, see their mistakes and learn from them. Now, I don't know where you're at, but particularly if you're a young man and you haven't got involved in relationships to the point where, you know what I'm saying... You've either got children out of wedlock. If you have, you know the drama I'm talking about. You know what I mean? But if you haven't, look at this and learn wisdom. I mean, look at the man, them all around you. I mean, they're everywhere. You know what I mean? Because of the culture that we live in. And I'm saying, I, I, I never looked and learned wisdom and thought, hmm, I'm not going to do that. I was able to look back in my whole, on my whole life and say, wow, Lord, thank you that you saved me. And by virtue of you saving me, that now is not my testimony. I'm saying the church is a good place for men. Thank you, my brother. Male servant, look at that. Men serving, look at that, man. That's... And that's the hallmark of a real man. If any of you listen to that message that we was encouraging you to listen to by Mark Driscoll, Men and Marriage, you see that a real man was typified by Christ Jesus. Because what Jesus did was Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to take upon myself the responsibility of others when it's not my responsibility because I never sinned. But I'm going to take the responsibility of others upon myself. That is what it means to be a real man, to take responsibility. And how many of you know that's the big thing that men don't want to do outside the church? But when you come in the church, you can't get away from it. Every, everywhere you look, you're being called upon to be responsible. And it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. Church involvement moves people out of poverty spiritually and financially. It's also correlated with less depression, more self-esteem, and greater family and marital happiness. How many, how many brothers in there can say amen to that? How many, how many wives can say amen to that? Pray. How many prospective wives, you know what I'm saying, who are happy to wait for a godly man will be able to say amen to that? Religious participation leads men to become more engaged husbands and fathers. This is what the statistics say. Now, 
The church is good for men, but men are good for the church. A study from Hartford Seminary found that the presence of involved men was statistically correlated with church growth, health, and harmony in church. Meanwhile, a lack of male participation is strongly associated with congregational decline. These statistics, if you want to look them up, are from the U.S. Congregational Life Survey, Key Findings, 2003, Barna Research, U.S. Census, 2000, Barna.org, Lifeway Research, 2007, Christianity Today, Why Religion Matters, The Impact of Religious Practice on Social Stability, the Heritage, the Heritage Foundation. We need men in the church and strong men at that. Thank the Lord for a man like Reynolds. Oh my gosh. St strong brother. Strong Christian men who will stand up. You know, you know how terrifying it is to come up here? You know how terrifying it is to stand up and try to communicate God's word? It's terrifying. For those who only do it now and again, and for those of us that do it on a regular basis, it's terrifying. But thank God for brothers who, with trembling knees and stammering lips, will come up and, and lead us in that sense. Strong men. And strong men gravitate to strong men, don't they? You only got to watch films like Gladiator and 300. I don't know, I haven't seen any up-to-date films <laughs> that I can mention, but you know what I mean, right? You see, the man see that and you think, oh, I, just, I, want, I, I will follow that man wherever he goes. Standard. Like David and his mighty men, who were mightier than David. But they recognized that, you know what, this brother, I mean, he took out Goliath, like what? And he was only young when he did it. I suspect there were individuals in the army that were like, he's heavy. That is... I don't know where he gets his strength from. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I don't even fully understand the God that he serves, but I want to be like that brother. I want to be like him. And then they associate themselves with him. Do you know that same group, it says they were disenfranchised when they were with, they, originally when, when they were with David before they became the mighty men, before David was even crowned king. He had been anointed king, but he wasn't crowned. And it says these, these, these guys, these brothers right? They were disenfranchised, they were discontent, and they were in debt. That's how it describes them. But after their involvement with David, after their involvement in the, 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 the purpose of God, you look at them, you think, they're the same guys. I mean, terrifying army. When the Lord God becomes evident in our lives, we're transformed. And strong men. Birds of a feather flock together, they say. And it starts here with men, trying to get back to my point. It starts here with men setting a good example as leaders. Leaders in the home, leaders outside the home, and good leaders in the church. Okay, so they were men. Secondly... 
they were all men. They were all male. Talking about leaders in the church. Those who are ultimately responsible. That doesn't mean that there were not female Christians without responsibility. There were. Just like there are females in our church with responsibility, but not as elders who were ultimately and primarily responsible for oversight and leadership. Now, we touched on that a few weeks ago. Okay, so they were all men. Third, they were elders literally. They were elders in terms of their age and elders in terms of their spirituality. Right? The Bible talks about not putting a novice in a position or a place of responsibility and authority. Right? A novice. That means they have to some degree have developed, right? And if you remember last week, we saw that Simeon was probably, possibly older in age than Saul. But Saul was probably, possibly, definitely older than him in spirituality. Because it was Barnabas and Saul that taught this church for a year. So, they were elders literally. Fourth, they were men, plural. They were a team of men. The Lord Jesus, when he selected his disciples who became the apostles, who became the leaders of the early church... Jesus selected men, didn't he? None of those who became apostles were women. They were men. Selected men. Not a man, singular, but men, plural. A group of men. Twelve, in fact. The Lord Jesus never sent any of them out alone. On mission, it was always at least two by two, right? That's probably the only thing that the Jehovah's Witnesses get right. We saw in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John. All of them exercising authority, along with the other elders. We're going to see when we get there in Acts 15, it says, The apostles and the elders, plural, were gathered together to consider this matter. You see the plurality of eldership. It's not just one man making the decision. In Acts chapter 16, verse 4, it says, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Whenever we see Paul the apostle plant churches, as we will later on in Acts, he would, he would always ordain elders plural. There are really basically two models. There's the Moses model, which is kind of one man who kind of leads the church with other elders, and he is the basic, the one that makes the decisions. And then he'll kind of feed that down to the other elders. But basically, he's the man that does the, the leading specifically. Um, well, Pastor Brown was saying the other day, he says, both models are good and bad. Because if you've, got, if you've got, a, got one man in the position and he's not a good man, the church is going to suffer. But if you've got a, one man and he's a good man, the church will 
will be blessed, like we see in so many different churches. But then he also says the plurality can be bad, you know what I'm saying? For the same reasons. If you've got bad men, then the church is going to suffer. But if you've got good men, it works. And just providentially, when we started the church here, we were three individuals who were teaching in tandem. We were doing a Bible study together, and um, the Bible study grew to the point where we were encouraged to start a church. Now, we were scared to start the Bible study, but the Lord helped us, and it was a blessing. And then we were scared to start the church like Moses. Lord, surely you're not going to send me or us. But the Lord helped us, and here we are, six years down the road, getting ready to plant another church. Praise God. And we benefit from being a plurality. We benefit from having the wisdom that one wouldn't have on his own. And it's the, that's the same pattern that we're looking to emulate with regard to starting any churches, particularly the one, in, the one in Jamaica that we're looking to start. See, and Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Paul says, this is why I left you, Titus, in Crete. What, so that you could be on your own and do it on your own? No. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. You see that this is the pattern. Invariably elders, plural. And as I said, most of those churches that have a, a, a single pastor, they have a team of elders as well. But as is different in the sense that we don't have a senior pastor. None of the three of us take full responsibility. Well, I heard what you both said, but we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. It don't work like that. You know what I mean? And if we get to points where we're, we're struggling to make a decision, we just we, we vote on it. And if an individual, you know what I'm saying, is outvoted, then they're outvoted. I've been outvoted. <laughs> if I had my way four years ago, we wouldn't be sitting in this room. Because I said, no, nah, let's not go, to, let's not go to, to that school, that charter. Let's not. And I got outvoted. Hallelujah. Thank God forever. <laughs> that I, and that's the benefit. But it's very humbling. Imagine being told, no, sorry, we're not going to do what you want to do. But, but that's not how they've done it. You know what I mean? But even, even in, in the most gentle ways, Rob, you know, we don't think that that's the best thing to do. We think that the other... However it's put, it's humbling. It's like, oh, 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 okay. All right, then. You don't want to do what I said. You don't like my idea. It's all right. It's humbling. Trust me. And we, we, and we, we consistently see that as we work together. You know what I mean? I think one of the things of being a senior pastor on your own and no one can challenge you is, you know what I'm saying? There's, and, and particularly if the person is a novice, you can fall into the temptation that, the, that, that, that Paul said that the devil fell in, which is pride. So, um, anyway. Hmm. Acts chapter 20, just to solidify the point. Acts 20, verse 17. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural of the church. First Timothy 5, verse 17, let the elders, plural, that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. That's what I'm saying. 
elders, again plural. James 5, if is any, among, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is the plurality. Now, is that a pattern that needs to be followed today? Well, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14 says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And lastly, number five. We saw that there were men. There were all men. There were elders in both sense, age and spirituality. There were men, plural. And we also see that they were spiritual men. Acts chapter 13, which is where we are, right? Verse 2 says, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting. Verse 3 says, and then fasting and praying. You see that these were spiritual men. They worshipped, they fasted, and they prayed. And that's just from this small section. We could look at other sections of the scripture where that further develops not only these points, but other points that would highlight that these men were spiritual men. They were men, they were all men, no women as chief as senior leaders. They were elders in age and spirituality. They were men, plural, there were a plurality of eldership. There were a team of elders, five of them, and they were spiritual men. They were excellent leaders. And they're a pattern for us as a church. And it's funny because you've got five of them and, and soon we're going to see that two of them are going to get taken away. Which is not very unusual, again, with regard to our circumstances. But they're a pattern. Excellent leaders who contributed to making the church in Antioch a great church. A model church. A church that we today have much to learn from amen next week we'll take a look at what qualified these elders and we're going to look at the qualifications for any elder looking at first timothy chapter three amen let's pray together dear lord as we think about leadership can't help but think about the trinity about the triune the triunity of god father son and spirit and how you are reflected so much in church leadership and father we thank you because just like the ark if we build it according to your specifications, it won't sink, it won't leak. And I know, Lord, for us as, as elders, Father, we stand here humbly, knowing that in a split second, Lord, we could fall, knowing that the only strength we have comes from you knowing that we're inadequate, 
knowing that. Lord, we're sinful men, yet we recognize the call to leadership. And Father, I pray that every single man who is seated in this room, Lord, who can clearly hear my voice, would be encouraged and inspired to follow Christ. And in so doing, hmm, become a leader. Just like the man who conducts an orchestra. He can't lead the orchestra until he turns his back on the crowd. My Father, I pray that that's what you would help the men in our congregation to do. That they turn their back on the crowd. In their following you. Because that's, when, that's what's going to qualify them. That's what's going to qualify us to be leaders. Not because we've got a loud voice or because we're intimidating or because we're clever. No, because we're following Christ. Like the Apostle Paul said, follow me. I make myself a leader by virtue of following Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And Father, I pray that that's what would happen in here and that you would raise up strong men. Lord, that you'd keep those of us who are in leadership, you'd keep us strong. And Father, that you'd raise up strong men, stronger men, like David when he looked at the, the mighty men and thought, wow, you guys are mightier than me. I pray that you'd raise up men that are mightier than myself, Pastor Patrick and Pastor Ephraim, Lord, who were going to go on to, go on to do great things and allow them to be an example, example for their, their wives, examples for their children, and ex examples, Father, for the church. And Lord, examples for society. I thank you, Father, that you've brought us Gentiles into the family of God. And you are such a wonderful example to us, Father. You're a great Father. Great example. Constantly setting. A perfect example for us. Help us to be perfect like you, our Father in heaven, is perfect. In order that others might see us and glorify you in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.